Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. A warm welcome to all our listeners and to my co-host Steve. Thanks Russell and hi everyone. We're really privileged to be joined today by Mary Myatt. Mary is an education advisor, writer and speaker. She's also behind the brilliant Myatt & Co website, which we'll ask Mary to tell us about later. Mary's books about education are extremely popular and if you haven't tried one yet or had a read, they are a must, particularly for school leaders. So, without further ado, a very warm welcome to the podcast, Mary. Well, thank you very much indeed for asking me to join you this evening. Delighted to have a yarn about some of the stuff that's going on in schools. Always a delight. So thank you. It's great to talk to you today, Mary. Now, we've said a bit about what you do now, but could you maybe give us a little bit more background about your career in education and a bit of a sense of what your philosophy about education is? So my background is secondary religious education, but I've also taught a little bit of English, some PSHE, a little bit of maths and some Latin at lunchtime. I've taught in London and Cambridge, but for the most part of my career, I was just outside Ipswich in Suffolk, then joined the local authority in Suffolk, where um, it was general school improvement, but also with responsibility for religious education um, and also the legal side of the RE syllabus, the Standing Advisory Council on RE, that work as well. But the part I enjoyed most was developing newly qualified teachers, coaching people, running networks, RE conferences, etc. But also worked on other big strands of work, um, particularly in the time of the strategies. So I uh, worked very closely with a colleague in primary on the able, gifted and talented work across Suffolk. I mean, we were really naughty. We used to take the view that every child had an ability, a gift and a talent. And it was our, our job as educators to pull that out. So we, we, we kind of reworked what was coming out of the strategies. Much of it was very good, but we made sure we reframed it so it was truly inclusive. And then since leaving the local authority in 2011, which is code for being made redundant, I've been, it's basically been independent. So I have done quite a lot in RE over the years. So with my colleague, Jane Brooke, we set up the RE Quality Mark a bit like the geography one, the primary science one, etc. And that was a great piece of work. I've also done some inspecting for about five years. But increasingly, my work has been talking about school leadership and the curriculum and, and everything that pertains to that. So it's, it's a really interesting time, I think, to be alive and to be working in education right now. I, I consider myself really fortunate. Now, at some point in the future, Mary, we'd love to get you back on the podcast to talk about the curriculum. But what I would say, Mary, is that both Russell and I are really enjoying your blogs lately. And we have noticed a common theme. You clearly feel that schools need to refocus on the things that really matter. Can you tell us why you think this is a thread in so much of your writing? Yes. Yeah, so my view is that the education sector as a whole is quite conservative with a small c. Um, it's also very diligent. And you put the two together, what you have are a lot of long-standing practices, which quite often have outserved their purpose. You've got that as a strand combined with a diligent professional group of people who want to do the best for children. And so there's a tendency across the sector to do more in order to benefit the children without ever asking, what are we going to stop doing in order to do some things better? 
So it's been something that's exercised me for several years and it's informed my thinking around back on track and many of the blogs is that we've got a lot of evidence now which as it currently stands, because the evidence that comes out of any kind of research is always provisional until new information comes through, but it's pretty clear that a high quality curriculum is gonna make most difference to most children. So we need to be making sure that we're continually developing our subject knowledge in order to get better at that. But we can't just shoehorn that in. So we've got to stop doing some things. And so let's stop doing those things that don't add as much value, for which there's very little evidence that it adds value. So things like marking. Most marking is a waste of time. Notice I said most, so not all marking. You've got to be really judicious about it. So Dylan Williams got a great quote where he says, if you, he's estimated the time that teachers in England spend on marking. And if you, if you amortize that into funding, it'd be about two and a half billion pounds a year. On activities for which there's very little evidence that it makes any difference to children. This is marking children's books. So we've got a whole industry <laughs> checking this stuff, but no one's checking to see if it makes any difference. So that is one of the things that in terms of doing fewer things and greater, we've got to take a hard-nosed look at some of the things that are simply not adding as much value as they might, so that we then create some time to do some things that are more worthwhile. But this is hard because we can't have everything as a priority, otherwise nothing's a priority. So we're going to make some things a priority, some other things have got to go even if we'd like to do them. So there's also sitting behind this notion of trade-offs. So there's quite a lot of emotional attachment to marking. I feel as I've done something, you know, my kids feel as though they, I'm building a relationship with my children. If I mark for them, I don't agree with that. I think my kids know <laughs> what I think of them through the interactions I have with them in the classroom. It doesn't need to be proof with a smiley face, that sort of thing. So a lot of what I'm talking about is really based on my, uh, my take on Greg McCown's essentialism where he argues that we've got to have the disciplined pursuit of less in order to do the handful of things really well that are going to have the greatest impact. It's also influenced by the Pareto rule, the 80-20 rule, where there's a lot of evidence across many sectors, both private and public sector, that a relatively small amount of import has a disproportionate impact. So there's work to be done around that in education. And then Marie Kondo's work, you know, the decluttering person, it says, you know, get shot of the stuff that's not adding value in your lives. You know, so that is a big thread of my work to, to stop doing some things that are not really making a difference to children's learning. So it creates the space then to tackle some other more interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we'd like this episode to really focus on. Just picking up on one point you made when you were talking about the kind of diligent um, characteristic of many teachers and leaders. I think Claire Seeley described it to me once as, she said, I think a lot of leaders and teachers when they were at school were good little boys and good little girls. And she said, there's a few out there that weren't. And they tend to be the ones that are happy to say no and do things differently. I thought that was a really good point because I think we do have a profession that attracts conscientious people that just want to do the right thing. And that's when we get that kind of lethal mutation of good ideas I was digging through we're having a big clear out of my house and I was going through my old teacher books and some of them were like my goodness and then there was ones like Shirley Clark's formative assessment and you go well, there was so much brilliant stuff here but look what happened to that as a, as a concept and it turned into pink and green pens and it turned into crazy marking policies I mean 
you're quite right. I mean, when I started teaching, there was arbitrary rules about how many pieces of work I had to deep mark. <laughs> it was completely unrelated to what Shirley Clark was really talking about in her book. But it, but someone had thought that was a good idea just to adopt and, and, and pick up. Yeah, it's sad when that happens, that lethal mutation. I suppose you've probably seen a few of those during your career, Mary. Yes. And, you know, my view is it's never a blame game because we're all no. doing the best we can. Absolutely. There's no one, you know, there's nobody turning up to work in school, so I'm going to do a rubbish job today. No. So we're doing the best we can, all of us, with the information we have at the time. Yeah. But, you know, your point about the deep marking, and, and you know, it applies to Dylan Williams' work as well, and, and, the, and the levels. Mm. We could talk about that a bit, a bit later if you wanted. But the point about the deep marking is that, you know, because it is appropriate to do some deep marking, but judiciously on very few pieces of work. But I, I have done a lot of book scrutinies in my work, both formally and informally. So both as an invited guest in schools and an uninvited guest on inspections. And I will never do them on my own. I, I always do them with a senior leader because I want to know what they're thinking about this. So we're, we're looking through some books and I, I just say, well, what, what are you looking for? And the response is generally along the lines, we're looking to see if they're marked. Mm. I said, well, that's marvellous. So now tell me whether it's made any difference. Mm. Well, we're not looking to see if it's made any difference. Oh, I see what you mean. It's like, well, why would we do something if we're not expecting to see any difference? Mm. And so, so much of it is ticks, smiley faces. But I, I'll give you a quick example where, um, you know, I was talking to a child year four before lockdown, obviously. And we were looking in her English book and she, there was some lovely work in there. We were having a good old chat about it. And then I noticed a couple of lessons before she'd been learning about homophones. So I assumed she'd learned it because she'd completed a sheet which had been downloaded from the internet. It had been ticked off smiley face by the teacher, stuck into her book, no doubt sitting on some spreadsheet, having turned that KPI green. So I assumed <laughs> the child had learned it. So I said, oh, homophones, those are interesting. So what have you learned about homophones? Not a clue. Not a clue. Bright little thing. But that was because the completion of the task was more important than whether she'd understood it. Mm. And so, you know, we've got all these proxies for learning going on, then being translated into, I call them dodgy data sets because they yeah. are for the most part. And then, and then that's how you get these lethal mutations. And so really, if a child cannot talk about what they've been learning about or demonstrate in some way, then it hasn't happened. Brilliant. I was just thinking that there'll be many a teacher out there who are thinking we have this kind of teaching policy whereby we, we deep mark to this degree and do this pointless ticking and smiley faces. Do you think there's an actual reason why schools feel so secure in wanting this and not moving away from it at the moment? I, 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 I can't fathom it. I think it's a form of control. Mm. I think in some schools, because actually there's lots of great practice, great sensible practice out there. So, you know, I've got to be careful not to give blanket judgments about this, but there's too much stuff where it is, it's compliance. I think that some senior leaders have forgotten what it's like to be in the classroom. And others think they need to do it and they haven't thought through why. So I think, you know, sitting behind all this thread of doing fewer things in greater depth is continually asking why. So why actually are we doing this? And my view is, is that everyone within the sector, from newly qualified teachers to middle leaders, to coordinators, to deputy heads, to classroom teachers, should be asking on a regular basis, why are we doing this? What difference is it making to children's learning? And that very quickly sorts out the wheat from the chaff. And that will sometimes feel uncomfortable. 
But I think we've all got to be sufficiently brave wherever we are. And I would say PGC students, NQTs, everyone's got to be asking this. And then, then we'll get some clarity about some things are adding greater value and some things aren't. I think the other thing that we get slightly caught up in is we confuse activity for productivity. So there's a tendency to think, well, everyone's working flat out. Therefore, the children must be doing well. It doesn't automatically follow. Just because I do more, it doesn't mean my children are going to get better results. Quite often, fewer better chosen things that really make them think they're going to really affect their cognitive development actually take less time. That's not why I do it. It's actually because it's better for children. But we've also got this idea that I've got to be busy. That's uh, mm -hmm. why I call Jackson Pollocking the curriculum. Just keep throwing more <laughs> and more stuff at them. Hope, hoping some of it's going to stick. Yeah. Right? We, we've just got to keep asking those questions. Not in a nasty way. So I talk quite a lot about the difference between being a cynic and being a sceptic. Yeah. So if we're a cynic, it's like, well, it's all rubbish and it's never going to change. And I've seen all this before. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's not helpful, is it? But if we're healthy scepticism and we're prepared to have someone come back to us and say, no, you're wrong on that, and this is why, then we listen to that. Mm. I'll give you a quick example from my local authority days is that I used to, you know, in a large organisation, you know, there are nearly 400 schools in the local authority, and, you know, there are meetings that you need to go to to keep the wheels going. <laughs> I used to say, I'll turn up to the first meeting that I'm required to attend, wasn't so much invited, I'm required to attend, I said, if I can't see a link between this meeting and what happens in classrooms in Suffolk schools, you're not going to see me again. Mm. You can imagine that didn't make me terribly popular. I don't care. <laughs> and Mary, can I pick up, because you, you mentioned that we confuse busyness or activity for you know, meaningful progress or impact, and I, I couldn't agree more. And one of the ways that I think perhaps teachers have done that in the past is through um, differentiation lots of different activities for different children in lessons and I know this is something you've written about a lot would you give us your thoughts about differentiation and and where we could be uh, focusing our energies perhaps better right so differentiation as an idea in principle is a good one mm. and was a good one in that we make the curriculum accessible insofar as is possible for every child in the classroom that is a good idea. What it got devolved into was I got to produce different work for different groups of children. Mm. Now, the issue here, this is a classic lethal mutation, is that I am busy preparing half a dozen differentiated colored worksheets for my class. And guess what? They're going to widen gaps because I am deciding in advance what some children are capable of and what some, some aren't. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, a, there's a, a great piece in Alison Peacock's book from 2015, Assessment for Learning Without Limits. Alison, as we know, is the CEO of the Charter College of Teaching, doing brilliant work, stunning work. I mean, what they're producing is, is next level. But in this book, she and a colleague were talking to some children in primaries. They were going from year five into year six. And they were trying to tease out what children thought of ability groups. But actually, the children are talking about the work that's given to them, right? So when they talk to the children who are identified as being on the top tables, well, they loved it. They enjoyed being the bright ones and they enjoyed having special challenges set by the teacher. Hmm. The middle group were annoyed they didn't get the same work and challenges that the top group had, but they knew they'd ever get the chances. There were only six seats on the top table. The lowest group 
were affected the most. They felt dumb, useless. They thought they'd never be allowed challenges because they usually work with a teaching assistant. Mm. And this less able group liked the sound of some of the challenges the top group had, but they knew they would never get the chance. Mm. And I just find that heartbreaking that we are rationing interesting, demanding work based on what I consider to be flawed notions of ability. I don't know what a child is capable of until they're given interesting, demanding work and supported to get there. So we reframe it by saying we pitch the stuff above their pay grade, simples, but whole glass, and we support the children to get there, scaffolding primarily through talk. But the minute we start saying only some of you are worthy of doing this more difficult stuff, we are widening those gaps. And then we wonder why those children don't catch up. But the reason I find it, I've, I find it, I find it really, really, it hits me to the core every time I, I give that summary, is that if you look at the children who are on those bottom tables or lower sets in secondary, a higher proportion of those children have people premium funding. Mm. Now, however we determine intelligence or IQ, both slippery concepts, but insofar as we're able to, I simply refuse to believe it's linked to postcode or parental wealth. And yet as a sector, we're talking about, oh, we've got to close these gaps. Yeah, but they've been given a diminished diet. Mm. And so we, we need to shift the conversations from differentiation in terms of poorer quality diet and we think about how we support all children to get there, which isn't to say that some of those children might need bespoke additional support in order to come into this. But it's not about predetermining in advance that only some of you are entitled to this, because that's the message that is going out. And linked to this is the way that we talk about children. So why are we talking about children having low ability? They're not low ability. Or, or teachers saying, my lowers. Mm. They're not. They're your children, sweetheart. They're not your lowers. Um, all we can talk about with any kind of confidence is prior attainment. What my children achieved up until now in the various aspects. You could have a child who is deemed to be really strong in mathematics, but they struggle with one aspect. They happen to be low prior attainment in that bit. It's so nuanced. But I'll just share this with you quickly, a piece of work that came out of Sussex University a few years ago. Although it was with year eights. It's got applications across the sector, I believe, so I'm going to share it with you. And that is the faster reading research, which colleagues might be aware of, which came out a few years ago. And what they found was simply reading challenging complex novels aloud at a fast pace improved the reading outcomes for all children, but particularly for the low starters. And what they found was just the headlines of it, that in the schools that did this, in the project, they selected two novels that were at least, at least a year above what the students would normally be studying. Everyone was engaged with this. That's all they did for 12 weeks, like radical. We read books in English, blow me down. No expectations for any written work at that point. They could make a few notes if they wanted, but no expression. It wasn't huge, about 360-odd year eights involved. But what they found at the end of that, that the reading scores for the whole cohort had improved by eight and a half months in that 12-week period. What did they find for the low prior attainers? Almost double. 16 months progress. Now, when they talked to the children about what, what had been going on, they said, we don't normally get the chance to do this interesting stuff. What's the diet for a lot of our low prior attaining so-called children? Well, they get a diminished diet, which is not fully fledged. So they'll get a diet of phonics, spag, 
decoding leveled readers, all of which are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And then we wonder why these gaps are still there. But then the other interesting thing from the report, the research was saying that teachers were surprised at how well these children had done. Now, we've got some real reframing to do about what we think about. So to, to round this off in terms of differentiation, children need to be supported, I would argue, primarily through talk in order to enter the domain with everybody else. They don't need a diminished diet. And, and helpfully, you know, we're not running our schools for Ofsted, we're running for our children, but helpfully, in the latest framework, the quality of education judgment, it talks about an ambitious curriculum for all children, regardless of starting points. So you've got to start taking this seriously. Thanks, Mary. That was a really interesting listen then, because actually I've got an assistant head teacher who's very passionate about this ideology of differentiation and the debate over what it can do in terms of the positives and negatives. So I know I'll be having a conversation with them very shortly after this podcast. Um, But there's one more thing that we'd like to pick up on, please. And that's your idea that children need to be creators rather than consumers, which is a blog that you wrote about. And actually that links very nicely to your other blog about photocopying too. I've been in school for 10 years and I've had talks with my finance manager who will hit the roof with uh, photocopying bills at times and we've also got a senior leadership team that can be very cautious as to how many worksheets and photocopying goes on throughout the day and in the books the children so my question is that are we still obsessed with the idea of evidence in schools and does this end up limiting what our students are actually producing within the lessons themselves yes we are obsessed with evidence well, I think the sector is, I'm not talking about individual schools, you know, it, it's not, it's never blanket for every school and every person working in schools. But as a sector, I think we're obsessed with evidence. And there's reasons for that. So it's never a blame game, but it's like, who are we collecting this evidence for? So one of the things we're obsessed about is, is thinking that, well, we, a lesson hasn't happened unless there's a written outcome. Well, what's that about? <laughs> Why has there got to be a written outcome in every lesson? Who decided that? So. If you look at the English national curriculum, there are four elements to English, and it applies to literacy across the curriculum as well. Writing is number four, which I think is no coincidence that writing is number four after speaking, listening, and reading. So if we want to get great writing, the children need to be fed properly first. So we've got lots of disincentives for deep learning because we're obsessed with having to either take photographs or prove something has happened in that lesson. But the proof is going to be over time. And that's why we need to have far more trust that actually, I do not need to prove that something's happened in this lesson. Just talk to my pupils, they'll tell you what happened. Now, I'm not saying we never, we want, what we want is really great written outcomes that have been developed over time. But if we've got this obsession of something's got to be completed every lesson, what do we end up with? A pile of dodgy worksheets, stuck into books. Oh, and by the way, we're an eco school. We haven't thought that one through, have we? So we're happy to paste paper onto paper. You know, talk, you talk to me about values. I don't, children can see through all this a, a yard off so that we can prove our children have been busy. There's been some activity. And then we get a bit of writing, right? Instead of saying we're going to build up to something really worthwhile. And so, yeah, I think there's a real worry over, uh, but who am I doing for? My first obligation basically my only obligation as an educator as a teacher is to the children in front of me and everything follows from that so if anyone wants to check (laughs) it is evident in the children's work it is evident in what they say it is evident in what they do 
And it's evident in what I say. My children can do this that they couldn't do 10 days ago. I don't need a thousand pieces of photocopying or photographs to, to prove that to you. And it's also evident in the final results. The final results will be proof of the pudding. But as a great quote from James Britton in 1970, who said, writing floats on a sea of talk. One talking more. You know, could have a whole lesson talking. Oh, but someone might come in and say, what are the children doing? Whole lesson reading, me reading aloud to a class. Oh, but someone might come in. Yeah, well, and, but what are the children doing? It's all happening cognitively inside. Okay, so got to got to really start reframing what counts as learning and what are proxies for learning. Yeah, I think that's such a pertinent point. Um, we have been developing our curriculum over the past two years, Mary, and we, I know we weren't going to really speak about curriculum tonight, but it was inevitable it would come up a bit. And I do find that talking to children as a senior leader who does need to have a sense of whether it's having any impact, I can't not know, that has been more telling and more informative for me than any other traditional monitoring activity I've done in the past. Is that something uh, you've seen in the work that you do? Well, yes. In fact, I was on a call earlier to a local authority leader that I really, really rate in, in Stockport, doing some great work then, all really sensible, holding schools to account, but also supporting them. And uh, we were talking about a bit about pupil voice. He said, I can't find anything on your blogs or in your books. Have you written about it? And I said, oh, my goodness, no, I haven't. This is a bad thing because it is a real research interest of mine. I think about it a lot. And for my money, it's one of the underestimated areas of information, blocks of information that feed into um, standards. Now, funnily enough, I mean, Ofsted for some years have, have had actually well-constructed, good pupil voice questionnaires, but I don't think schools are asking enough of, I think there's a fear about asking pupils about what they think, but my work has shown, and I'm a statistic of one, so I could be wrong, but wider research has shown that actually children are remarkably honest, particularly with well-framed um, questions. Um, some some schools worry, particularly in secondary, that they're going to say bitchy things about their mm -hmm. teachers. Well, they won't if it's properly phrased. They won't. And they're very revealing about curriculum and standards. They're very revealing. And, and so it's not the only piece of information we should be using, but we've triangulate that with, mm -hmm. with others. And I do need to, to write more about that. Uh, but one of the things I'm suggesting in relation to the curriculum intent when we're thinking about our subjects and we want them to be ambitious and some things that might feed into that, is that actually we do do a bit of pupil of our, uh, voice. How would we like our pupils and students to talk about our subjects? Mm. What would we hope they would say? Yeah. And, and, and that can be very revealing. Then do, to do some samples of pupil and student voice, it's, it is very revealing. Back in the late autumn term before the next lockdown, we had a history lead, for example, talk to samples of children at a great distance across the school. And she just said it was so much more revealing than any other task she might do or looking at books without the teacher because you kind of can't fake it, can you? You know, if the child can talk confidently, articulately about what they've learned, then that's just brilliant. And then what we found is uh, myself and my, my assistant head who sort of lead on the, the, the wider curriculum, we've stepped back from too much of the subject specific stuff. We're trying to get the subject leaders asking those questions. But we might ask questions like, and it's not to catch teachers out, but we might ask children things like, which subject do you think is your teacher's favourite subject and why? And that's just really interesting because when we're trying to develop this passion and interest in all subject areas, if they all mention history, but none of them ever talk about geography, well, what's going on there? So it's just, it's useful. And like you say, it's no one piece of evidence is in itself a, 
accurate picture of the whole thing you have to triangulate that but yeah talk i think is really powerful now i want to sort of come full circle you mentioned your wonderful blog uh, essentialism earlier or that concept of essentialism earlier and that great line that you start the blog with we have an awful lot of stuff going on in schools it's getting in the way of our core business teaching and learning i mean i think that's spot on I just wanted to pick that part a little bit more, and we, we have touched on it in quite a bit of detail, but why do you think people are still wasting time on stuff that isn't part of our core business? We talked about evidence earlier. And how do we get people focusing more on the stuff that really matters? And I'd be really interested, Mary, because we have listeners who are leaders. A lot of leaders listen to the podcast, but we have a lot of teachers who can't influence sort of leaders' decisions. be interesting to think about that question from both the perspective of a teacher and a and a leader and how we can really shift that culture. Mm. So I think when we're thinking about, you know, essentialism and thinking hard about the things that are getting in the way, I've got my hit list. So we've talked about, we've talked about <laughs> marking. Yep. And I'm not excluding all marking, but it's got to be really intentional. And the most marking needs to be, uh, feedback needs to be as close as possible to the action, mm-hmm. not these proxies. For that. But I think that, we, the, I think the reason it happens, another another on the hit list is data. Mm. This is where the conservatism plays in again with a small C. Well, we've got to prove progress and it's got to be on, on some kind of tracking grid. Mm. A huge amount of time is wasted on that. And then tracking expected progress and all this sort of stuff. Expected progress stopped being a DFE measure in 2015. Mm but we've still got systems and processes hard baked into the system and a lot of money and time invested in them still mm-hmm. trying to work to work to systems that were underpinned by levels which basically went in 2013 implementation in 2014 dfe wake up in 2015 ofsted <laughs> ofsted wake up in 2017 with their with their updates uh, saying that you know got to stop talking about expected progress it stopped being a thing And that goes back to levels which were never, ever intended to be, the classic lethal mutation were never intended to be split into uh, sub-levels used as progression matrices. Um, You're probably too young to remember APP, Assessing Pupil Progress. Oh, no, I remember it well, Mary. Yeah, I've highlighted many a grid. (laughs) I mean, what a pile of of booth, really. Mm -hmm. Anyway, those statements were end of key stage okay mm. what's the longest key stage it's four years what were we doing bucking about with them but you could see i mean nobody <laughs> set out for it to be a complete nonsense it's just this is what happens when people don't stop and ask why yeah so yeah. that was all nailed yeah. uh, for implementation 2014 here we are in 2021 we've still got the legacy of that because what's happened is the headlines the titles have changed but the systems are still t- talking about well children have got to make progress so many points per year to prove they've made progress mm. At this, this is utter nonsense, colleagues. Mm. <laughs> this is levels. And what is clear, it's very clear in the latest framework, is that it is the curriculum itself, which is the progression model. Mm. The curriculum itself, that is the cr- uh, progression model. And this great insight, which is fed into Ofsted's work, has come from Christine Council and Michael Fordham's work and saying, actually, the children are making progress if I've taught them some stuff and they've got it. That is yeah. it. Forget the blimmin' <laughs> progression matrices. Now, it is so simple 
that it's almost beyond belief. And but because the sector is wedded to these very sophisticated data inputting machines that are going to save you time and tell you exactly what you put in, there's a catch there. Mm. I put it in, you tell me what I put in and you're charging me money for it. Goodness gracious me. <laughs> anyway, so this 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 brilliant piece of insight has been picked up by the inspectorate. Hooray. So it is as simple. I have taught this unit on the ancient Greeks. This is what was the content was. Most of my children are just fine. How do I know? I think it's a lovely phrase. They're just fine. This is um, J.B. Pembroke's phrase uh, with, a, with another. These kids are just fine. That's all I want is my kids to be just fine. A handful of them have, have done a bit more research than I was expecting. And, and have produced something of greater of greater sophistication. There's a small group here that I'm worried about. I would expect my line manager to say, what are you doing about that group? What have you been doing about them? And there might be a small minority who are still, because of additional needs, have limited access to the curriculum. So we're thinking about broadly four categories, but it's all related to, I have taught this unit, how well have they done? How do I know? I don't know because of some numbers on a spreadsheet. I know through talking to them, looking at their books, anything they produce. Um, Tim Oates is really helpful here. So he led on the review of the national curriculum. He says, how do we know whether our children have learned what we've taught them? It's through the things they produce, which could be a big spectrum, including things like double page spreads. So Emma Stanley's work, brilliant on this. Paul Watson's work is brilliant on this. And so this notion of Stepping away from traditional stuff is actually a piece of work, cutting the umbilical cord to stuff that has been traditionally done. And because there's all these nice, neat graphs, which tell us absolutely nothing, we've, we've got, it's a real case of the emperor's new clothes. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it that in this latest framework and the handbook that goes with it, why are Ofsted inspections not taking, going to take any notice of internally generated school data? Mm. Well, because it's dawned on them <laughs> that it's neither valid nor reliable. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So this message still needs to still needs to get through because you get shot of all this time wasting stuff. Then we've got time to read some great books so that we can then teach those to our children. So a mm. big thread of my work now, and I know we're drifting to the curriculum, is that to quote Andy Tharby, really the text really needs to be the beating heart of every lesson beyond, I would say, maths and possibly PE, but we'd still want lots of reading going on for homework about the background stories to maths, PE and all the rest of it. But I, I don't know about all that stuff if I'm busy producing these half a dozen differentiated worksheets that are going to increase gaps. If I'm in a school where if it moves, I have to mark it. And when I'm putting dodgy data in every two minutes, it's simply not going to happen. And so if we want standards to rise, I think it takes classroom teachers to be asking senior leaders, well, you'd like me to do this. If you could just walk me through what difference that's going to make to children's learning, I'm happy to do it. But if someone can't justify it, we shouldn't be doing it. End of. It's simple as that. That's it. You've solved it. You've solved everything, Mary, in that sentence. If people could just take that on board, I think the difference to schools and children would be enormous. And you know, I think Steve and I both... Um, have really been privileged to work in schools where we know our teachers will say that to us. If, if, we're, if we're introducing a dodgy idea, it's the same for you, Steve, isn't it? They'll say, hang on a minute. <laughs> Honestly, I, I've got a person in mind that I know, and I, I can rely on them as a really valued member of staff that will ask the challenging question, rightly so, 
because it's all about the impact for the children. If it's not there, I love that they feel they can ask the question and then we can reconsider anything along that line. Because like you say, if it's not for the good of them, why are we doing it? Exactly. What a wonderful place to end, which I hate to do when I'm having such a wonderful conversation. So Mary, would you please come back another time in future and we'll have a really meaty curriculum chat. Would that be okay? Yeah, very happy to do that. It's been great talking with you this evening. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. A privilege, I would say. A real privilege. But before you go, Mary, do tell us a little bit more about the Maya & Co website, because that's a fairly new endeavour and I'm really liking the sound of it and how it's developing. And you must mention a little bit more about your Back on Track book as well. Uh, Right. So the stuff I do is always in response to what schools are asking for. So what I was finding was that there were more and more schools asked me to go and work with them individually, which I love doing. Mm. I absolutely love doing, but it's only so many days you can make available. And then, so I was getting more work than I could handle in terms of supporting the curriculum. And then I found during lockdown that I just put a few, I just put a few videos out just as part of my website, no charge, just stuff I was thinking about. And the response was amazing that people, there's real hunger for high quality, interesting stuff that is always offered as provisional. This is what's, this is where it might be pointing to. It's never a three line whim. And then of course, there were some great programs coming out of Research Ed, coming out of the St. Albans uh, Teaching School Alliance, the work of Sufian Gill and others, Chiltern Teaching School Alliance as well. Seneca Learning. There was lots and lots of Mm. lovely stuff going on and people just loved it. And so what I decided to do was to just put recordings up of some of the stuff that people were mostly asking me about. So I could just point them to there. But the other reason for setting up the platform was that I was very conscious, particularly for the big keynotes and and the high profile pieces of work, tends to be the same people, you know, me yeah <laughs> i'm a bit i'm a bit bored of me i'm not i'm not picking myself up I'm, big, I'm really bored with me and a handful of other people why we ask because we we're, we're pretty good you know it's, it's pointless being falsely modest <laughs> but what about the other people mm. and and i just thought and it's always been a big thread of my work how am i growing and supporting the people who are younger than me and coming up behind me mm. So that was one thread. Why not just open up a platform for other interesting people to talk about their interesting stuff? Um, So that's been a thread of it as well. But also I wanted to honour some of the people whose work I was referencing. So if I was talking, for instance, about Richard Kennett's work, he's a brilliant historian who is in Bristol, and the work he's he gives his year seven mixed prior attainment class is basically A-level stuff, and they are lapping it up. Why? Because it's offered to them in the principles of high challenge, low threat. So I'm referencing Richard's work a lot. I'm thinking, why don't I talk to him so that people can hear it from the voices, uh, the horses' mouths, as it were. So it was about broadening the voices and hearing great stuff and thinking, why isn't that captured somewhere? So basically, some of it's my work. Some of it is capturing great ideas from other people. But it's just offered in the spirit of stimulating conversations. And so one of the threads is that uh, we want to make it as accessible as possible to people. So... We've always got stuff that's free, available free. Every webinar is free to access. So is today Wednesday? Yeah. So tomorrow I'm doing Curriculum Impact with Jamie Pembroke. That's Mm. going to be that's free. And then I'm doing a piece of work um, on the curriculum in Wales. I've deliberately not called it the curriculum for Wales because it's just about curriculum principle. And again, it's because I was being asked by quite a few schools in Wales, 
Could I talk to them about some stuff on the curriculum? So rather than keeping saying no, I thought, well, I'll put on a webinar and then you can you can listen, to, you know, and chip in because it's the opportunity too to ask questions, which makes it really interesting. Mm. It's hair raising, but it's really interesting. And then the, then if people want more, it's behind a very low subscription model, a kind of Netflix model. Yeah. So it's quite an interesting business model. But basically we've got, it's been going nearly six months, end of October, and it's got over 4,000 people on it, about 4,500 people on it. Wow. And the large majority, about 80% of them just tapping into the free stuff. That's great. That's what we want. And then we've got nearly 1,000 doing the subscription stuff, yeah. which is which is great. And, and lots of schools and, and mats are buying it for their colleagues, which is lovely to see because it's it's just a non-judgmental place to replenish our professional imaginations. That's how we're branding it. And and people need to check out your new book. So you, you said your blogs that are on your website are a really good taster of the back and track book at the moment. Yes. Yeah. And so it's just the stuff I'm generally thinking about. And so a lot of the the blogs, I just pull out chapters from either that book or previous books and think, oh, you don't need to buy the book. I'll just shove this online and see if you find it helpful. That's very kind. (laughs) (laughs) Your books are wonderful. The first one I came across was this one. I always like to show people on the screen, Hopeful Schools. What a beautiful human first book that is. Absolutely loved it. Mary, what a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. We know you're very busy and it has, as Steve said, been a privilege having your company tonight. Really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you so much. Don't shoot the deputy.